Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. Welcome back. I'm so happy you're back. I'm so happy to be here after a four-month absence. And this is a great show to start with. I was really excited about this book when I when I first heard about it. I've admired Rachel Aviv's work in The New Yorker for a really long time. In general, mental illness is something that I'm pretty interested in. So, so this felt like a, a really perfect, perfect book to come back and talk about. Yes. I too am a giant Rachel Aviv fan. She's one of my favorite working journalists today, one of my favorite writers on mental health and criminal justice and other stories that blow my mind every time. I don't know how she finds her stories. That's one thing we didn't end up talking too much about, although she kind of threads in a little bit about how she comes to some of the people she writes about in the book here. And we talk about a couple other stories she's written too. She's really amazing. And this book has stayed with me ever since I read it. Yeah, I agree. And it's a really, both like a very empathetic approach to writing about mental illness and a, a thorough one in a way, because it, it considers the really wide variety of factors that go into how a person might experience mental illness and what, what might lead to it, whether it is sociological, biological, economic, generational, just a really wide variety of factors that contribute to mental well-being or the opposite. Exactly. Yeah. Great. And I loved talking to her with you. Welcome back. I'm happy to be here. Let's get to the show. Great. Rachel Aviv is a staff writer at The New Yorker, where she writes about medicine, legal ethics, and criminal justice. She has twice been a finalist for the National Magazine Award for Public Interest, and she received a Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award, the Scripps Howard Award for reporting about police violence, as well as the Whiting Creative Nonfiction Grant. She was a 2019 National Fellow at New America. Her new book is called Strangers to Ourselves, Unsettled Minds and the Stories That Make Us. The book collects the stories of people whose mental health crises subvert our usual understanding of diagnosis, treatment, and healing. The book begins with Rachel herself, who was hospitalized at the age of six for anorexia before she even knew the term for her illness. Each chapter is then dedicated to a different person, Bapu, an Indian Brahmin woman, Naomi, a Black woman who in her psychosis despairs of the very real racism and generational oppression that surrounds her. The stories of Ray Osheroff and Laura Delano both explore the ways in which psychiatry is still grappling with medication and biology. Aviv's book explores how the lives and experiences of mental illness defy psychiatric explanation, requiring a broader view of the economic, social, and lived realities of the people who experience them. Rachel, I was wondering if you could talk about how you came to the overriding topic of the book, which I feel like in a very pared down word is the limits, benefits, and vagaries of diagnosis. And I was wondering, because you've written for so long about mental health, is this something that you've always been aware of in your reporting? Is this something that you first came to because of your own experience with being hospitalized when you were six years old for anorexia and have been kind of thinking about ever since? Why did you want to write about this topic in particular? I think probably, yeah, the experience of when I was six did shape some of the questions that I always had. 
but it kind of became crystallized for me like 10 or 12 years ago. I was working for, I was working on a story for Harper's about people in the earliest stages of psychosis. And it was the first time I realized how hard it was to communicate mental illness to sort of communicate the texture of the experience of being mentally ill. I remember one person I interviewed, I'd asked her to describe her symptoms. And she said, describing the experience is like trying to explain what a bark sounds like to someone who's never heard of a dog. And a lot of the people I was interviewing would describe how, because they couldn't describe their experience, they would like latch on to an expert interpretation or explanation. And then they would start to worry that maybe like they'd lost track of what their authentic experience was because it had been like reshaped by the diagnosis or the, like their understanding of what was going on that had been told to them by doctors. So I think that was like one central strand of the book that I didn't quite know what to do with. And then in 2000, I think it was 17, I wrote a piece for the New Yorker about Swedish children who had, were trying to get political asylum there. Many of them were from former Soviet states. And when they were denied asylum, they all developed these very similar conditions, which involved not eating, not moving, not talking. And it seemed, as I reported on them, that like this illness came to be called resignation syndrome. And it almost felt like a self-fulfilling prophecy, like the illness would gain momentum as people responded to it as this particular illness. And I remember feeling kind of like embarrassed by how much I related to those children, even though like I was not facing political persecution or anything close, but like that impulse of being a child and sort of feeling helpless and desperate and expressing it somehow, but then like seeing how you are classified and allowing that classification to kind of, or adjusting your own behavior to fit that classification. And that process like became central to me. And I wanted to write about that, like how our identities can interact with diagnoses. You mentioned that syndrome in the book and it's the puzzling thing about it is that though, you know, people are facing seeking asylum all across the world and, you know, having some of the same hardships, it was only replicating in Sweden. So it was like as though it had been pinpointed and then it starts to replicate. Right. People had accused them of malingering and making up these symptoms, but I didn't feel that that was the case. But I did notice that families with a child with the illness tended to know another family with a child with the illness. And the diagnosis didn't exist elsewhere. So it did feel like, yes, a child being denied asylum in any country is going to feel distress like psychological distress. But in Sweden, there was almost like the option to express it in this very particular way. And then there was this kind of secondary gain, which was that Sweden recognized the illness and then used it as grounds to grant asylum. So eventually children who were ill in this way did sort of save their families, like their families got to stay in Sweden. But it wasn't as if the children just woke up once their families got asylum the illness was real, like the behavior interacted with the biology and like they were sort of stuck in this like comatose seeming state. So this book starts with your experience as a child and your hospitalization for anorexia 
And part of the interesting thing about that experience and something that sort of grounds this book is that you had no, you were really small, you were six, Mm -hmm. and you had no language for what you were experiencing until you arrived at the hospital and you were given terms by doctors and by some of the older girls who were there and who were experiencing similar symptoms and who could tell you, this is what this is called. This is what we're doing. These are other ways in which you can be anorexic. Why do you begin this book with this anecdote? I do think it helps sort of set everything up in terms of the stories that are to come, but sort of in the way that you conceptualize of your experience. Why do you begin there? I think because there's always a space between like the, I'm imagining that there's some sort of like pure unadulterated anguish. And so maybe I was feeling that. And then it feels like there's this space between whatever that like pure experience is and the form it ultimately takes because the form Mm -hmm. it takes is shaped by how people interpret your experience and how people respond to your experience and then how you in turn respond to their response. And I felt that the story of, you know, my own experience had felt, it was classified, but it felt like fundamentally unclassifiable. And I think that might be how a lot of people feel with mental illness. Like, yes, that diagnosis works, but you always feel as if like there are parts of your experience that are not being captured and that might be really integral to why you're suffering. And then I think like my questions changed a little bit when I learned about this girl, Hava, who had been hospitalized with me and I'd really admired her and looked up to her. And she was sort of this figure in my family that we saw her as a special person. And later on, when I learned about her, her mother gave me access to all of her journals. And I learned about the course that her life had taken. I had this sense of us as having lived like these parallel lives. Like our stories were so similar when we were hospitalized and then our lives had gone in such different directions. And that became a question for me too. Like you take two people with the same diagnosis. Like, why is it so hard to predict why one person is okay and one person is not. And, you know, like, what are we missing to not be able to know or predict that? I wonder if you could talk about the word insight. You know, that comes up a lot here and it's used in clinical settings and it's expected of patients. And I think it's interesting that at the same time, everyone who you wrote about also wrote about their own experience. So you were, you know, using both clinical reports, but then also people's own writing about what they were feeling and what they were going through. I think I was looking for a word that would describe the thing that I was trying to describe, which was like the mismatch between a personal experience of illness and the way it is understood by theory and experts. And insight felt like the closest thing because it's the word that doctors use to describe like whether there's a match whether the patient comes to you and understands that like she's not hearing the voices of gods, those are symptoms and medication can treat those symptoms. So it felt like it just sort of, it crystallized this desire within psychiatry to kind of like bring the patient's perspective in alignment with the doctor's perspective. And this assumption that that is going to be healing and liberating and productive and And I think it is a lot of the time, but I was also interested in the assumption that always would be. I feel like one case where there was a particular, you know, gulf between 
the two was in the story of Bapu, which I mean, all the stories here are really exceptional, but that one in particular also because it was not only about someone who is, you know, having certain symptoms, but it's also had to do with, you know, a Western model of mental health versus a non-Western model of like, you know, spiritual striving and enlightenment. And those two seemed somewhat pitted against each other and a colonialist stories in India, you know, and many of the mental hospitals were working much more like on a British system. So I thought there it was like colliding in just a really fascinating and very hard to define way. I mean, I think like when a patient comes to a doctor and says, I'm hearing the voices of zombies, like that is very easy to say, this is a sickness, but it it, like complicates everything when you're in a culture in which your expression, like the voices she was hearing are culturally acceptable. And there is a, a very healthy version of hearing those voices. And there's also a way of like idealizing those voices. I think there's this like binary that sometimes gets used, like, is is she a mystic or is she a schizophrenic? Um, (laughs) And she was seen as a mystic by her community at these healing temples. But when I was reading her journals, it wasn't as if like being a mystic made her feel good either. She was also really suffering in that state. I mean, suffering less in that state, I think, than when she was home and being accused of failing as a mother and as, as a wife but it did feel like it was the the idea that she had to choose between those two identities that was really destructive for her. Maybe we can quickly just say who Bapu was, because I think we're we're kind of talking Mm -hmm. about her and what her experience was. So Bapu lived in Chennai. She got married in the 70s, and she had two young children and a husband and lived with all her in-laws in this very wealthy Brahmin family. Actually, they weren't that wealthy, but in this very sort of elite Brahmin family. Mm. And she, after the birth of her two children, like became increasingly spiritual and was like singing all the time and writing poems all the time. And at the same time became increasingly detached from like the incredible amount of household duties that were expected of her. And maybe it was an escape too. like she, there were such heavy expectations for a wife and she found them degrading. And so as she became increasingly spiritual, she kind of absented herself from the household. Just so there might've been some sense of freedom in that. Yeah. It really struck me that she kept escaping from the family and that it seemed to be a source of getting out of the social structures that may have felt oppressive to her. Yeah. It offered like one path. I don't think there were many paths for a woman at that time to escape her family obligations, but one well-defined path is you become a woman who's a mystic and you run away because your devotion is to God. And that is what she did. But her daughter, I think who always felt, abandoned by her mother. When she read her journals with me, I think she was really shaken to realize like that even when her mother ran away from her, she was grieving the loss of her children. Like that wasn't an ideal solution. That was a a loss. The stories of the children, and they come up in each of the case would you call these case studies? I mean, I'm not quite sure. If I, I don't think I would. I think early on when I was writing the book, I like loved the form of the case study and I wanted 
to write something that would resemble that. And then I felt like that was wrong and that I realized these were not individual stories. These were family stories and they spanned like several generations and it felt inappropriate like to see it as an individual story. Yeah, that makes sense. Each of these stories, it felt to me like has so much to do with, as you just said, with children and with families. Like Ray is really grieving the loss of his children. Bapu's grieving the loss. Over and over, this comes up. And I guess I sort of wonder what you make of that. Like, aside from the fact that children are, like one of the things that happens to Bapu is that her son keeps finding her. He won't let her go. And if so, she's trying to escape. There's one person in her family who is absolutely committed to not letting her. But the children sort of respond in different ways to these, to their parents' experiences and the parents respond in different ways to their children. I wonder what you, also maybe how you experience that story over and over again. Right. I mean, my first reaction is like, what else is there besides like a relationship with one's parents or the relationship yeah. with one's the people one takes care of, like that is like the source of so much. And it may have also been the way that I, the stage of life maybe that I was at, like with two young kids. So like the questions I was asking mm-hmm. people, the things I was paying attention to. But I think like when you think about what does mental illness take away from people, it often does take away your ability to like, have the family you want or have the life you want. And it's not just for the individual, it's for like the people in their families. And I guess that just felt integral to the stories they were telling. And it feels integral to my own story. It felt so there that I don't remember ever making a choice. In the case of Bapu, you know, she goes back and forth between being on this spiritual journey and going to ashrams and kind of, it's hard to tell in her case how awful the experience was or if it was awful when she was, you know, waiting outside to see different gurus and, you know, living on very little, living this really aesthetic life. And then, I mean, that life in some ways seems preferable to when she's in mental institutions and being chained to beds and being forced to medicalize. But in the end, she's cared for by her son's wife. And that becomes like her close friend and who's really able to just be a support for her. And I thought that that was, you know, that was like this model of care that seemed appealing because it was personal and it was devoted. And I think the book brings up a lot of questions about like, well, how are we to treat mental illness? And that was just such a kind of poignant model of just one person being there and helping another person. But that's very hard to reproduce across Mm -hmm. the board. Right. But it was like, I did think that it was these horizontal relationships that were like so healing for people, like not the relationship necessarily with the doctor, although it could be, but like the relationship with a fellow patient or the relationship with a librarian, but like just someone who is like able to register. I mean, what was amazing about Bapu's daughter-in-law is she both like gave Bapu her medications and, and believed it was an important thing to do, but she also like wrote her letters to the temples to help her. She was able to the hold two truths at the same time that like she needed to be accessing the divine and she needed to take medications and like 
both were fundamental to her sense of who she was. And without them, she would sort of feel diminished and dissolved. Well, maybe we should talk about, and this comes up relatively early in the case of Ray, or Ray's story, but one of the sort of dualities maybe that arise in the ways that people think about treatment of mental illness. And yes, Papu's case sort of mixes this a little bit, but medication versus essentially therapy. Mm-hmm. And I forgot Ray's name. Ray Oshroff. Oshroff, that's right. Mm-hmm. Ray is an interesting case because he's a successful person mm-hmm. at first. He's married. He has a series of businesses. He has a career. And he slowly deteriorates and then sort of quickly begins to deteriorate when he is hospitalized at Chestnut Lodge, where it's talk therapy. There is no medical treatment in terms of medicine. He then goes to another treatment facility where he is given medicine. He later sues the first place for malpractice, I guess, essentially. Yeah. And I wonder what you make of Ray's story and the kind of tensions that it sort of sets up mm-hmm. in terms of the psychiatric community and how people think about using medicine to treat mental illness. Well, I think his story is this like canonical story that gets mentioned in textbooks as like, this is the story of the triumph of biological psychiatry over psychoanalysis, like end of story. And here we move on with biology. And I thought first that that binary is, it should not be an either or type of thing. But also I just thought his life itself showed that you know, biological psychiatry did not save him, even if he thought it might at one point. And that there were these Chestnut Lodge felt like such a beautiful idea. Like it was this space where everyone really believed that if you talk to someone for long enough and you get to know them long enough, you will understand them and like there will be a way forward for them. And I thought that the ideas there were incredible and it felt like such a loss that it couldn't survive. And mm-hmm. Ray kind of you know, helped facilitate the collapse of Chestnut Lodge. And yet his memoirs in the book I draw on, he had this idea that he could tell this like perfect story and finally justify his life through this memoir that he wrote for decades and never published or completed. The memoir seemed to me to like, it was saying something that, contradicted like what he almost wanted he wanted revenge against chestnut lodge but i felt like the memoir was actually like a plea for someone to really listen to him mm. and understand his full life story and how it was that he like fell off the rails and was no longer the person he had expected himself to be you're listening to the larb radio hour We've been speaking with Rachel Aviv, author of Strangers to Ourselves. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We're excited to have Raquel Gutierrez back with us on the line today. Raquel is the author most recently of Brown Neon, a collection of essays, and they join us today for this week's book recommendation. So Raquel, what book are you recommending? I recommend Dog Flowers by Danielle Geller. It's a really gorgeous, heart-rending memoir of a mother 
through her objects, uh, primarily boxes of photographs that mm. the author Daniel Geller, who is also a librarian and archivist, goes through and tries to make sense of her loss. And it's uh, it's really gorgeous and also just narrates Danielle's relationship to her Danae match. Uh, matrilineal side and mm. and in her relationship with uh with her, with her grandparents really can you tell me how you first encountered this book how it came to you well i know danielle from she was the first person i met when i moved to tucson arizona and mm. um someone who had been writing a lot about her family and we were neighbors also and so i would see some of you know some of her in, in interactions with family and so she also has a really gorgeous essay in the New Yorker. It's a lyrical essay uh, translating the Danae dictionary. Now, are you somebody who holds on to objects? Like, is that another reason why this might have resonated with you? The stories that you tell through objects? I have started to. I've started to. I I used to sort of have a more investment in ephemerality. Mm. But I think now as I've gotten older and I've lost, uh, you know, one parent, I'm starting to definitely see the the value in objects and I've held on to some key objects but I also try to be fairly selective in what I hold on to all right that sounds like great advice can you give us the (laughs) title and author of that book one more time dog flowers dog flowers by Danielle Geller thank you so much we've been speaking with Raquel Gutierrez author most recently of brown neon you're listening to the larb radio hour we now return to our conversation with rachel aviv author of strangers to ourselves you know it's interesting because in the chapter on naomi who has a lot of the opposite of what ray experienced no one is listening to her no one is taking the larger context of her life you know, she's someone who grew up in a housing project. She experienced lots of early trauma. So she has the effects of poverty, the long shadow of racism. But people in her care are focusing on what you you call managed care. So which is like a very, you know, kind of tight model of like just medication and a little, I don't even know how much therapy, but doesn't seem not, like very much. Not much. Not, okay. It was all like hospital treatment. You know, when you go to the hospital, it's just trying to help you stabilize to the point that there's medications you can take home, basically. Just getting that bed empty as quickly as possible is is what you say. And so I just thought that that, you know, that's this whole other example of where the lack of context is so damaging to the understanding of the patient and where when we're looking at the full picture, of course, we can see everything she's talking about is real. It's like a surplus, though, of perception that suddenly it's like, I think that's the kind of chestnut about being paranoid when people are like, just because I'm crazy doesn't mean they're not out to get me. In Naomi's story, every single thing, of course, seems very real. So in that case, how did she end up getting better when so little attention seemed to be paid to these larger life circumstances and stresses in the first place of her experience. I mean, the story of how she got better is not a story to guide anyone because like she did actually get better in prison. And I think part of getting better was like reading a lot. Like just, she read everything 
she sort of felt less alone because she did read about other women like her, other Black mothers like her, and she became very close with the prison librarian. And the prison she was at was unusual in that there was a counselor who talked to her and did really want to understand who she was and had a little more time to do that. But I think ultimately she felt like she had been suffering because of racism and poverty in her environment, but she didn't need to like throw that out the window to also accept that she had a mental illness. And I think when she initially encountered doctors, there was more of a sense of like, she wasn't being heard because she was trying to tell them like that she had chains on her and they were saying you're having a delusion. And, but there was like a kernel of like metaphoric truth to what she was trying to communicate. And that obviously there was no time for anyone to sort of understand what she was trying to articulate. And then there was this weird inversion where, you know, when she did commit a serious crime and was arrested, she wanted to plead insanity and she was evaluated by doctors and they said, but she's not insane because like everything she's articulating about society is true. Like they valued her sociological insights and they were like, yes, she's right. Like it's really hard to grow up as a black child in this country. Therefore she's not insane. And so she wasn't given the benefit of not having a criminal record. And we should say the crime that she committed was she jumped off a bridge with her two twins. Mm -hmm. And the last thing she screamed was freedom as she jumped off the bridge and one of the children died. In that case, and throughout the book, I was wondering if, I don't feel like you're on a diatribe here to try to change the nature of mental health in this country. But I mean, hearing a story like that, how can you not have some ideas of what should be done or what is not being done? And I wondered, you know, if you did start to form opinions on on what those were and, and what would need to change. I do think like the most basic thing I could say is that someone who's mentally ill should not be in prison. I mean, should not be, you know, there was this ridiculous cycle of her becoming extremely depressed and then she would attempt suicide. And because she used a razor to attempt suicide, that's contraband. And she would be put in solitary confinement for her suicide attempt, which like, you know, one can't imagine a better way to exacerbate a mental illness. So I think like, in terms of the way the criminal justice approaches mental health, that feels simpler. The problem, like when we think about the mental health system is that just any solution so often involves more money, like more money into a health insurance system, the way that health insurance covers mental health care. But I do think like there is interesting work now about these kinds of horizontal relationships that I mentioned earlier, like that peers can have a powerful impact on people's ability to recover. And in the book, I felt like loneliness isn't talked about enough in psychiatry. I quote this psychiatrist, Frieda Fromm Reichman, who basically says that like psychiatrists don't talk about loneliness. They're scared of loneliness. Like it's such a, when you think about it in it's like purest form, it is such a terrifying idea that people are worried it will contaminate them. But it really felt like if, you know, if you look at the trajectory of the people's lives that I wrote about, like they were alone in their worst moments of mental illness. And like when they started to recover, it was because they found someone who understood. Yeah. It struck me with Naomi in particular, that the day that she jumped off of that bridge, it seemed like she was just walking along that bridge, just hoping that somebody yeah. would even just see her. Right. And the tragic thing is that 
yeah, she describes how she was walking along this bridge and just waiting for someone to smile at her and kind of smiling at people and looking at them. They didn't return the smile. And yeah, you think about like, what if one random person did smile at her? I mean, it sounds silly, but like, would that have just changed the entire trajectory of her life? Yeah. I mean, it also struck me that, I mean, her in solitary confinement was just incredibly difficult to read about, but it struck me that it turned, she turned or she got out because the librarian came to visit her and she finally felt that somebody understood her and somebody could hear her. And it struck me that, yeah, I mean, such a small gesture of a visit. Yeah. yeah. And turn she, this she, around. And she kind of trusted the librarian. Like if a prison mm-hmm. guard tells you you're acting like a maniac, like take these medications, you don't believe it. You want to be defensive. But when like someone you really admire and relate to tells you like, I don't recognize you right now and it's scary for me then she became aware of, you know, like, I don't need to be in this state. There's a way to get out of it. Something else that strikes me is the being receptive to small gestures can be a lot easier depending on mood and mood, depending on medication can shift. So you write about pretty openly about taking Lexapro, getting on Lexapro and having just Things that used to bother you didn't bother you. Yeah. You know, you found a lot more social. But then you and your friends who were all on Lexapro were kind of like, well, why are we all on this? And what maybe what is unacceptable about like normal behavior that the Lexapro changes that like society likes more, you know, more or less. I mean, that that also comes up a lot. Like what are not kosher sentiments for society. What like someone walking around who's so angry all the time, of course no one no one likes that. And medicated, you know, they might not be as angry or people who are antisocial women who are thinking that socializing is not worth their time and their work is more important and that maybe not having children is even important because they'd rather be working. I mean, that question of the frame of normality which is of course like the age old question, but how much did you start to investigate what that framework is versus how people kind of cohere to it? Well, I think I did want to avoid like one question that feels like a trap, which is the question of like, am I the insane one or is it society? Because it just, I just, yeah. But I did want to think more about like this idea that like mental illness is just in our head, is in our brain and is in our body. And that we sort of neglect the fact that no mental illness sort of emerges as a relationship between like our brain and our body and our community and our society. You know, for Lexapro, I am totally unresolved about that question, but I, I do remember finding like a sense of momentary peace when a friend told me like, it's okay to take this medication because there's like some misalignment between the way we want to be and the way society wants us to be. And this like helps blur that difference. But I don't know. I feel like I'm so far down on this path that there's too much (laughs) momentum in taking Lexapro and living this way, but I, I can imagine a different path. Well, I think one of the paths that you imagine with the ending of the book is Hava's path. And we talked about her very briefly, but she is one of the, or she was one of the girls that you were hospitalized with when you were younger. She was a little bit older than you were. She was like a teenager already. And you go back to her and her story at the end of this book. And I was wondering if you could just talk about that, talk about what Mm -hmm. drew you back to Hava and Hava's experience. 
in the most literal sense, I had been interviewing my old psychiatrist from the hospital. And I think I'd been asking them, do you remember this girl? I remember Hava. Like, and I, I was describing how important, how Hava had like lived on in my family, this like beautiful, kind person who'd taken me under her wing. And then one of the psychiatrists, I could tell that like their faces changed when I mentioned her. They revealed that she had died six weeks earlier. And I felt really like chastened by that because I think I had talked about anorexia in this cavalier way, almost as if like it had been this freak show that I had like experienced when I was six. Like, what was that? You know, and I felt really embarrassed in a way, like to not have taken for granted that like this is a fatal disease also. And I wanted to understand more about who she was and then when her mother told me that she had basically documented her life in these journals and I read them, I just, I felt like this intense sense of identification with who she had been at the moment that I met her, like her, both of our parents were going through divorces. We both had similar backgrounds and yeah, that question for me of like, why did I move on and why did she not? And you know, in the most like dumb sense, I wondered, maybe it was just, I was younger and I was kind of like moving through different stories about myself more quickly. And I could sort of bracket that as a developmental stage. And it never like attached to me as a story that defined my identity. And she was older and her peers mattered more at that point. And maybe she went to a different kind of school. I mean, these little things about how our communities responded to us when we returned from the hospital. I did wonder like how much that changed the years that followed. I mean, coming off of the Hava story, in some ways, does it make you question how much diagnosis is like a useful tool that the naming of a disease and the kind of understanding of mental illness is that you are something, it isn't something that you move out of so easily. Like when someone is schizophrenic, I think there's an idea like this is for the rest of your life. You will always have to manage this. We don't think about mental illness more on a spectrum and continuum as, you know, sometimes that we all have the ability to become mentally ill and we all have the ability to be well. I think there's this feeling of morbidity, like it will always be there. So do you feel like that should change at all? Do you feel like the DSM is done? No, no, because obviously like people need to be able to communicate somehow and the DSM offers a way to communicate about these things. And also some people get diagnosed and they feel like seen for the first time. And they feel like finally they no longer think of things that were, they were blamed for as their fault. So I don't want to overlook like how important a diagnosis can be for someone's sense of healing. I just think we don't know, like sometimes the diagnosis works that way. And then sometimes it doesn't, and it feels like a self-fulfilling prophecy and it feels like a trap. There's this sense of unpredictability. And I think it's maybe that unpredictability that could be acknowledged more, like more of a sense of humility about like not knowing how an explanation or a diagnosis interacts with a person's own story in part, because like there aren't people's own stories don't get aired that much in a clinical encounter. But I do think diagnosis obviously serves an important purpose, but there's just like so many other ways of describing experiences that the diagnosis sometimes supplants and maybe like stifles curiosity or desire to describe and try to communicate about like all those unmapped, undescribed experiences that also feel integral to mental illness. 
I wanted to ask, just as having read your work over the last decade and always finding your stories to be really amazing and intense and always just kind of blown away by the people that you have found and the stories you have found, like how the work affects you, if it does affect you, if that seems like a silly question, you know, from documenting people who have gone through such extreme hardship and trauma and if being the recorder of that has had an effect on you as a person or can be difficult actually to write about some of the things that you've written about. Thank you for the first thing you said. But the second thing I've been asked this before, and I feel like I'm very unprocessed about this. I often like draw blank when this question is answered because I do think it has affected me in ways, but like not ways that maybe sort of ways that are harder I don't think I'm able to answer this question because I don't like there are parts of my personality that I think I could like think about in relation to this, but I'm not there yet. The capacity to just have no, to have nothing be too much, to be able to hear anything. I don't think everyone has that capacity. There are are things that are too much. There are topics that I will not go to. Now they tend to involve like loss of children, but Obviously, I wrote about Naomi, but you know, my focus was on her and her family more than the lost child. I wonder how, maybe this is sort of a parallel to that question, but I wonder how you sort of, and maybe you just do this naturally and you don't really even think about it, but how do you enter into a family like Naomi's or to a family like Bapu's? It seems really hard. It seems really hard to sort of insert yourself into that context. I think it is slow. Mm. You know, it was slow for both of those families. I think for Bapu, the idea did come from her daughter after a few years of corresponding with her, but she, I think she understood what I was interested in Mm -hmm. and it kind of clicked for her that her mother's story should be told and, and that she had a desire to do this, like that she was getting older and that this could be important for her family, but also that her mother's story contributed to a conversation about mental health that she wanted to be having. I think for Naomi, yeah, I think, again, it came from, her desire came from a place of feeling like her story hadn't been understood and had been written about, you know, in the media at the time of her crime in ways that she found very degrading. And then she also had that same desire to like do something in the world related to mental health. So I guess some of the family members were more reluctant, but then I think as they saw how involved she was and then how involved her mother became that they had a different perspective and then it felt important to them to have their perspective captured as well. But I do, I did choose people to write about that like, felt they had a story to tell and felt like activated by the process of telling their story. I didn't want it to feel like I was winning them over. I wanted them to want to share their story. I guess, you know, in closing, thinking back on your own experience of being hospitalized and kind of like being able to move past a diagnosis, does it come back to you ever like that time or, you know, this idea of yourself as anorexic, is that something that you still reflect on now or is it, does it really feel like in the past? 
anorexia feels in the past, but that framework of being an ascetic person and having an ascetic personality shapes my life. And I don't think that's a response to the way I've been labeled. I think that's an unfortunate like part of who I am. But yeah, I've had a friend joke like, you're anorexic about work. You know, you you kind of like always feel like it's not, you're not doing the thing you had meant to be doing. So yeah, sort of having ascetic tendencies feels like, yes, I can understand why when I was six, I had like the willpower and the discipline to do this self-denying thing. Like that lives within my adult self as well. But you've accepted it at this point. No, I would wish, I wish it weren't. I wish this were not me, but I wish I could be more fluid, you know? Yeah, I was gonna say, what is it that you wrote when you were a child that you- Oh, I wish, yes. I wish I could be someone better than me. I (laughs) said Yeah, we, I mean, we all do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, Rachel Aviv, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you guys. That was Rachel Aviv. Her new book is called Strangers to Ourselves, Unsettled Minds and the Stories That Make Us. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd really love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Ji-Ha Lee. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vodden. Thank you.